Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, recorded live at WBAI 99.5 FM in Brooklyn every Tuesday at 7 p.m. RPM is about doing the work, the work to build a democratic socialist future. Each week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in New York City. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. Hey, what's up, New York City? It's Amy Wilson. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute, live on WBAI. We are a socialist radio show and podcast from members of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. The Democratic Socialists of America is the largest socialist organization in the United States with 95,000 members nationwide. New York City DSA is our biggest chapter. We are run by our 9,000 plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. Once again, my name is Amy Wilson. My pronouns are she and her, and I'm a worker and organizer here in New York City. Abortion providers across the country are bracing this week for a decision expected soon out of a Texas federal court, which will immediately block access nationwide to one of the two medications commonly used for medication abortions. As the anti-abortion lobby and their allies in the United States government attempt to deal yet another blow to this fundamental human right, organizers here in New York State are continuing the struggle to ensure abortions remain safe and accessible for all. On tonight's show, we are live with Nix from Reproductive Justice Collective and Marion from New York City DSA's Socialist Feminist Working Group to discuss the upcoming decision and what it means for abortion providers and patients. We'll also hear about their efforts to ensure abortion access in New York State and how you can get involved with this crucial struggle. We'll be taking your calls later in the show tonight around 7.45 p.m., so please get ready to join our discussion. But first, the headlines with Caroline Van Zeitz. Hello, listeners. This is Caroline with your headlines for today, Tuesday, February 28th. In local news, Mayor Eric Adams identified areas of disagreement with Governor Kathy Hochul's proposed budget, including MTA funding. The New York State Democratic Party's decline in last year's election may be attributable to lack of housing policy. Landlords of office buildings in Midtown Manhattan, which have seen rising vacancies since the pandemic began, are resisting calls to convert their buildings to residential use. The Sanitation Department's plan to overhaul its commercial waste collection program was delayed nearly two years to the end of 2024. Advocates for change have cited rampant worker mistreatment and dangers to public safety as urgent reasons for the overhaul. The Army Corps of Engineers released its plan for a $52 billion project to protect New York City with a system of waterfront barriers. A coalition of local environmental groups have raised significant concerns about the plan. The Freelance Isn't Free Act, which Governor Hochul vetoed last year, was reintroduced by State Senator Andrew Gennardis, District 22 of Western Brooklyn, and Assembly Member Harry Bronson, District 138 of Rochester. Madison Square Garden is facing hearings to discuss renewing the arena's operating permit in Midtown, 
Transit advocates widely believe that the arena stands in the way of renovating and expanding Penn Station capacity. A recent study shows that New York State leads the country in the amount of public money given to for-profit colleges. Keith Brown, a Republican Assembly member representing Long Island, also works as a corporate lawyer representing clients with business before the state. The medical residents and fellows at Montefiore Medical Center are unionizing with CIR or SEIU. A Hell's Kitchen landlord wants to evict an elderly couple due to being stuck in Ecuador during the pandemic. In elections news, groups representing voters in Queens are suing the city council over newly drawn district maps that don't include a majority Asian American district. The implosion of Hector LaSalle's judicial nomination, the Senate's passage of the Building Public Renewables Act, and the momentum behind good cause eviction illustrate how New York City's DSA's electoral success has shifted political dynamics in Albany to the left. For Revolutions Per Minute, this is Caroline Van Zeitz. Now back to the studio for today's show. Thank you, Caroline. Our headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredible weekly newsletter by New York City DSA's electoral working group covering local politics and radical activism. You can subscribe at thethornnyc.substack.com. Now let's turn to our live guests here on Revolutions Per Minute tonight, who will be helping us discuss the very important and always timely topic of abortion. Marion and Nix, uh, you've both been our guests on the show in the past, but for those who aren't familiar with you, haven't organized with you or heard your voices in the past, can you just introduce yourself? Tell us a bit about who you are and what inspires your politics. And let's hear from you, Marion, first. Mm -hmm. uh, thanks, Amy, and thanks again for inviting us on the show. Uh, so I'm Marion, she, her pronouns. I've been involved with the Socialist Feminist Working Group since 2017. Um, in addition to that, I'm also a writer. My work has appeared in Lux Magazine and Teen Vogue and The Guardian. But yeah, the main thing I do is um, organize with DSA. Great, thank you so much, Amy. Um, I'm Niharika, I also go by Nix. Um, I'm an abortion doula and organizer with New York City for Abortion Rights, the Reproductive Justice Collective, um, and Advocates for Youth. Um, my work really focuses on confronting the connections between the criminal legal system and reproductive access, especially for young people. Um, and I do this through legislative advocacy, clinic defense, and self-managed abortion work. Thanks so much to both of you for having, for being on tonight's show, really looking forward to um, the discussion. Um, so part of uh, our thinking for tonight's show uh, in the planning process was there's this really big and frankly bad um, judicial decision that's been hanging over the heads of uh, abortion providers, patients, and abortion access organizers for weeks at this point now. We were anticipating that by tonight, February 28th, we would have the result, we'd be able to discuss what's happening going forward, but the process, just as it was for the Dobbs decision um, that repealed Roe Ro v. Wade, is becoming very long and drawn out, and it's bringing up kind of bad memories, I think, for everybody um, in that regard. But for those who may not be familiar with this case that we're discussing, um, with the context of abortion access um, nationwide now, um, 
Nix, would you mind um, laying that out a little bit for us? And what is it? What is this decision that we're all waiting for with negative anticipation? Yeah. Um, and before I go into this background, just a total plus one to this reigniting a lot of Dobbs trauma for a lot of people in the movement where it feels like we know what this decision is going to look like, but we just have to wait for it to come down. Um, so some context on November 18th of last year, several anti-abortion groups sued the U.S. Food and Drugs Administration or the FDA over its approval of mifepristone, which is one of the two drugs used in medication abortion, along with misoprostol. Um, the lawsuit basically asked the court to order the FDA to withdraw the approval of mifepristone in order to remove it from the market and ban its use for medication abortion nationwide. Um, the big deal is that this case, despite being based in Texas, could result in a nationwide ban on one of the two medications used in medication abortion, even in states where abortion is protected, like New York, like California, like any of the states that we commonly think of. Um, medication abortion, I shouldn't have to say this, but I'm going to repeat, is used for more than half of the abortions in the country and is extremely safe and study after study has found this to be one of the most effective ways to end this pregnancy um and it's one of the most least invasive methods of of treating a miscarriage as well and is um very commonly used um so the lawsuit is really basing its attack on the scientific validity of mifepristone. But, you know, despite this not having any basis in factual reality, because this is a Trump-appointed, hyper-conservative judge, um, the judge has the ability to ignore science and reason and side with the plaintiffs and thereby enjoin or ask the FDA to prevent the distribution um, of mifepristone across the country. Right, and let's talk a little bit more about that judge and the plaintiffs in the case, because I think this is a piece of the story that really needs to be told um, and that people out there may not necessarily know. So um, I'll lay out my understanding of it and then we can kind of go from there. So. It's this uh, group called the Alliance Defending Freedom. Boo. <laughs> and and they, they're they not defending my freedom. Um, certainly, certainly not. No one here in this studio is being having their freedom defended by them right now. Very notorious um, right-wing legal group. Somehow a 501c3 uh, nonprofit, um, which speaks to the wackiness of that particular legal system in the United States. Long story short, um, they're the plaintiffs behind a lot of different cases, whether it's um, uh, COVID de denialists, um, anti-vaccine cases they've taken. They've taken cases um, with, you know, wedding vendors who want the right to discriminate against gay couples and refuse service to gay couples, whether it's, you know, photography, cake baking, you know, all that type of type of case. And now they are pursuing this case against um abortion access, essentially. And not only are they known for their legal um, dealings, they also have really burst into nationwide prominence after the Super Bowl, 
when they had a very high profile at the He Gets Us campaign, um, which is a very kind of watered down, whitewashed, like Christian uh, evangelical advertising campaign that's based on this idea that um, we should not politicize Jesus and we should uh, really listen to Jesus's message to to love our neighbor, which is, you know, we could go have a whole show on the misuses of, of religion in this country, obviously. Um, but again, it really speaks to the depth and organization of the anti-abortion lobby um, that is actively pushing these legal avenues that have already very effectively reduced access to abortion in this country and who show a lot of signs of being able to continue along that path. So I'll shut up now because the folks are here to listen to the two of you, um, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of the, the right-wing opposition, the anti-abortion lobby, and what that means and has meant for us as socialist feminists, organizers, um, abortion access advocates, et cetera. So um, let's hear from you on that, Marianne. Uh, yeah, Amy, uh, thanks for that, opening it up. Um, I don't know, a lot of thoughts come to my mind. I guess the first thing I think of is the fact that today, a higher number of people support abortion without any restrictions than supported it when it was made legal in 1973. But still, um, you know, even with, with more and more people supporting a, a abortion over the decades, you know, more and more rights have been stripped away. And I remember reading a piece by Jenny Brown, who's a member of National Women's Liberation, and her talking about some of the organizing that she did um, to, to, to get the FDA to first uh, approve the uh, ab abortion pill. And thinking about how in that essay, her takeaway was that we need to return to those kinds of tactics, like a really unapologetic, non-timid, not caring about respectability um, and mo moving away from the model of like lobbying and legal cases. But then I think, um, I don't know, even using those tactics now, we're still starting to lose. And to, to your point about the right being so organized, um, I don't know, this was, those are some of the things I, I think of. Yeah, um, I, I think really just echoing a lot of those comments, I think the reality is, is that um, we have neglected the sort of full frontal level of organizing that the right has been able to do, right? The people who are suing um, the FDA are the same people who are supporting anti-abortion harassers on the streets. I think that is really important to understand that this attack they are trying every possible avenue to try to limit abortion access. And yes, like grassroots on the street organizing is super, super important. But at the same time, it is vital for us to use whatever modicum of power we have in like the political and the legal system and to subvert the laws um, and, you know, do things like self-managed abortion awareness and access anyway. Um, and especially with this case, I think what's important to note is the fact that 
that is exactly what people are doing. That is exactly what the movement is doing in response to the case. We are encouraging the FDA to pivot to a misoprostol-only protocol for abortion, which has been studied in both Nigeria and Argentina and multiple places in the global South to be between 93 and 99% effective for medication abortion. Misoprostol is a second type of pill, um, to be super clear. And we're encouraging the FDA to adopt this protocol because you know, when, when we're faced with barriers like this, the best thing we can do is to pivot and fight back and use the resources we have. In this case, our organizing partners from the Global South who've been having misoprostol-only abortions for decades and use the resources and learning they have to advocate for rights um, in the U.S. and on our own turf. So that's really, I think, the next sort of barrier and hurdle that we have to surpass depending on what this case result looks like. I also think there's an opportunity for the FDA itself to decide not to enforce this regulation um, and this ruling. Obviously, we're not going to rely on that and we're going to continue our organizing either through self-managed abortion access or from misoprostol-only access regardless. But really, I think, you know, with things like that, the power of people on the streets, the power of people putting political pressure on something like the FDA, right? Again, we learn from the AIDS crisis. We learn from the initial approval of Mifepristone itself that these are agencies that can be influenced by the people. Um, and really, I think we're just drawing on those lessons, both historical and global, to help form our response to this. Thank you for that, Nixon. I, I want to underline a point that you made there um, in, in so somewhat of a subtle way, which is that, you know, the focus is on patients and the focus is, at the end of the day, on ensuring access because what we can never forget um, in discussing this topic, as with most topics that we discuss and organize around, um, whether it be housing, whether it be climate crisis, that this is extremely real and it is extremely urgent for millions of people in this country. And for people who currently need abortions, there's a clock on how long you have to get that care. Um, and so one of the, I think, most poignant things that I saw both in the run-up to the Dobbs decision and in the run-up to this decision is the various abortion providers that I you know, follow on various types of media saying, great, this is another day that we get to provide you know, this, this certain protocol of medication abortion to patients. That's X number of patients who are going to be taken care of. And when we have this flood of, of human need, um, providers are, are focused on care in this very real and concrete way that I think is important to keep at the center of our discussions, even as we're also talking about, as we are tonight, the bigger picture, larger trends, historical context, et cetera. Um, if you're just tuning in, this is Revolutions Per Minute. We are the official show of New York City DSA. We're broadcasting on listener-sponsored WBAI at 99.5 FM. You can find us after the show as well on your favorite podcast app. Today, we're talking about organizing to keep medication abortions accessible to all, 
starting with a little discussion of a nationwide case that the decision is expected in soon, and moving in the second half of the show to um, our context in New York State specifically. We will be taking calls and questions around 7.45 tonight, so please get ready for that. Um, but for now, while I'm here with two brilliant panelists, I'd love to continue this discussion and bring up that question and ask, you know, what will be the impact of this decision on providers and patients, whether that's in terms of access to care itself or any potential legal repercussions that might arise um, for folks either seeking or um, providing abortion? I can speak to this again. Um, so this depends a lot on the nature of the actual decision and then what the FDA decides to do. So there are multiple ways this can play out. So first, the judge can enjoin the FDA from distribution, which and then the FDA could decide to enforce that, right? The FDA has a choice there to enforce it or not. If it doesn't choose to enforce it, obviously, the situation on the ground in New York is going to look better because patients and doctors are still going to be able to access mifepristone. Um, if the FDA does decide to enforce it, it would likely mean that um, mifepristone is not going to be as accessible or accessible at all in these so-called blue and abortion legal states. Uh, I, I mean, I, I hesitate to say abortion legal because we're realizing that's a very tenuous position we're, that we're lumping states into. And that would mean that, obviously, other methods of abortion are still going to be available over there. For example, manual vacuum aspiration abortions, DNCs, DNEs. Um, but medication abortion is like a choice for a lot of folks because it allows people with childcare to have it at home. It allows students to access it while being in class. And everyone should choose the type of healthcare they want to access. Um, so in in that type of situation, again, a lot of telehealth providers especially have already stepped up and said that they're going to automatically switch to the misoprostol only protocol, regardless of what the FDA says. And the FDA has not said anything yet. I think they're also waiting for this decision. We know that providers like Carafem um, have committed to providing misoprostol only uh, medication in states where abortion is legal. So that is definitely something that helps in places like New York. Obviously, in states where abortion is restricted, where people are more vulnerable to regulations, we're looking at an even more dire situation where patients aren't able to get abortions and they have to travel to other states to access abortion, which is very much been the status quo since Dobbs. Um, yeah, next. Thanks for that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, I guess, a little bit glass half full, glass half empty in the sense of that it is still really effective to take misoprostol alone, but, you know, the medical recommendation is to take a combination of the two. Um, I feel like I read somewhere that um, I think just taking misoprostol alone is about 93% safe versus um, a higher amount if you take both. But Nix, I don't know if 
you know, more about that. But um, yeah, so I, I think um, it, it, it's definitely a, a blow, but it, it is good that you can still at least take one to, um, you know, be able to have an abortion. So. One of the things I read um, in researching this case and what the potential repercussions would be is that, and this made me like, I'm going to say laugh, but not because it's funny, but more because it was like not surprising in a sad and awful way where it was like, oh, without mifepristone, the abortion is more painful potentially um, and cramping lasts for longer. And it's just a, a more difficult process. And I just was like that just speaks so much to how, um, again, like the experience of the patient is put last so often politically and these very real experiences that are very intimate and personal um, are just like on the table as these political bargaining chips and the spiritual, mental, physical, emotional health of people who are getting abortions is just completely thrown off, you know, the list of considerations um, for the right wing and, and sometimes even for, you know, mainstream uh, liberal politics um, and liberal responses to uh, these attacks on abortion access. So before we transition into talking about um, New York State specifically and some organizing that's happening and some initiatives that will hopefully protect access to abortion for people living in New York State, which as we just discussed will become even more important as people are traveling to get care, um, as care is restricted in other places and certain areas of the country become sanctuaries for abortion access, which is one of the futures that we envision in this new landscape. I want to give each of you a chance to say any last words that you might have about the national landscape of abortion access now, what we're seeing, whether it's political analysis or honestly, whether it's just your your thoughts and feelings as somebody who has been organizing on this for a while. Um, you know, what have the last couple of years been like in this field? Yeah, I think I can speak to this as a quote unquote young person. Um, I feel like it's been really hard to face these type of types of attacks along with things like the bans that we're seeing around gender affirming care and the, you know, <laughs> lack of access to student debt relief that we are also seeing it feels like a very coordinated and combined project against young people's liberation and young people's bodily autonomy. Um, maybe partly because we tend to lean left and we tend to be a more radical generation. But I think that um, it's important to know that this is not a generation or a group of people that are going to take this type of these types of things lying down right notably a lot of these attacks like the supreme court student debt ruling like this decision are by a bunch of old white men right who have hijacked the court system and the economic system to enact their power because they know the power of the people is opposing them. And I think I always come back to connecting with the fact that we are the majority. And as long as we organize, we will be able to regain our rights. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And yeah, for me, I guess, just in terms of the, the landscape and the work that I've been involved in, um, I feel like there 
at the at the start of when uh, Roe, not Roe, when start when um, you know, when Roe v. v. Wade was overturned, it felt like there were there was a lot of energy within our chapter, and a lot of people started to look for a way to move against you know the outrage and injustice um, we were all seeing and and experiencing. And that energy has kind of gone down, but there's still just so much to do. And um, yeah, so I hope, you know, people listening to this do decide to like plug back in. Nix is doing a lot of amazing work. And even though abortion is legal in our state, there's so much political action that one can still do. One can still speak out. March, come to a working group meeting, donate money. Um, so, so yeah, so it would be great to get more engagement in that way and think of ways to like sustain that energy. So, yeah, could not agree with you more, Marion, as a fellow member of New York City DSA, kind of tracking um, our organizing around this issue and seeing that when the Dobbs decision dropped last June, there was a huge upswell of interest in protecting um, abortion access. But there's also so very much going on that is capturing people's attention. And I think part of a, a way to kind of conceptualize that is think about the fact that these are not separate issues. We're not, we don't have to be issue-based organizers, you know, as socialists and people on the left, we can connect the dots. We can connect the narrative here um, and say, you know, this is definitely all of a piece with um, the attacks on people's economic rights, um, labor rights, um, rights of, in bodily autonomy in other ways. As Nick's mentioned, attacks on trans rights are very, very interconnected with this abortion struggle. In fact, um, I believe that the legal reasoning for the potential banning of mifepristone is based on the fact that it wasn't sufficiently tested in people who are transgender or gender nonconforming, which is a word that I can't say on air on 99.5 FM, but um, I think we all know that it's BS, right? Like it's not done out of care for trans bodies and trans lives. It's done out of a desire to control. And where else do we see that desire for control coming up? Where else do we see the right wing attempting to limit people's lives and pursuit of happiness. And, you know, again, not succumbing to the temptation to see these issues as separate, but trying to find a way to organize around them together and holistically. So I'm really excited to chat with you both about the organizing that's happening um, in New York State coming up. Um, but I do have to take a moment and pause uh, the, our conversation to talk about getting involved in another way, which is getting involved with community media, community radio, maybe making a donation to WBAI uh, tonight. Um, maybe you're a longtime listener of WBAI. Uh, maybe you were, you've been listening since Roe v. Wade was passed all the way back in the early 70s. Um, and maybe you've been a supporter of, of abortion rights for that long. I can't imagine how sad this moment must be for you. Um, but I want you to know you're, you're not alone. Um, there's plenty of people out there who are still continuing the struggle, continuing the fight, um, and who understand that this is an issue that is really important for, for all people. Um, if you're out there tonight and you're, you're an old timer, 
um, just know that we're out here too. And um, maybe that inspires you enough to give $5, $10, or become a BAI buddy in the name of a show that's not afraid to cover abortion, that's not afraid to say the word abortion um, on 99.5 FM, sad as it is. That's something that's still lacking in a lot of coverage of um, abortion. People will say reproductive rights, and it's like the right to do what? <laughs> right? Be specific. Well, here on Revolutions Per Minute, which is hosted on WBAI, we're not afraid to get specific. We're not afraid to name the forces that are out there um, that are preventing us from the full exercise of our rights. Um, and we're not afraid to name them because we don't have, uh, we're not beholden to them. They're not giving us money. They're not funding this show. It's not the same foundations that are funding media on one hand and legal cases on the other hand, right? Uh, so that's a really important outlet for the left, um, for the working class in New York City. I certainly think so. That's why I'm here on Revolutions Per Minute. Um, I hope you do too. Um, I'm grateful for you for listening out there. Um, and maybe this is your first time tuning in, in which case, welcome to WBAI. Uh, and please consider supporting the show that you're hearing right now and the station as a whole. Um, the number to do that is 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Or you can go to WBAI.org. This is a really important resource. You know, abortion access has been maintained through generations by the passing of information, the free passing of information, um, when those activities were not supported um, by you know, the legal structures of society, and maybe that's something that we need to revive. So if that works for you, if that's hitting home for you, please go ahead, pick up your phone, call 212-209-2950. Maybe you're right by your computer, type in wbai.org, go to the donate page, give us a couple dollars tonight to say thank you for hosting this type of content on the airwaves in New York City. Returning now to our live panel of Marion and Nix discussing medication abortion, uh, both nationwide and in New York State. Let's talk a little bit about the specific bill that would, um, let's talk a little bit about the bill. I, I won't say what it is. Um, I'll let you guys describe it. Um, tell me what it is and tell me how it got to this point so far, the, the grassroots and the background um, behind it. Yeah, I can take this. So this has really, very importantly, been a youth and student-led effort that, and we saw a gap in access and we saw the impact of both pre and post-Dobbs abortion restrictions and stigmatization. And we saw the impact that was having on young people. And therefore we decided to organize around this. So the bill basically requires abortion access, abortion pill access on CUNY and SUNY um, campus medical centers. Um, it was introduced by Assemblymember Harvey Epstein and Senator Cardo Clear, who is my senator. Um, and it basically, apart from requiring these campuses provide medication abortion, which again is extremely safe, is actually safer than Tylenol and Viagra and most things they provide at these campus medical health centers already. Um, also provides funding both for folks from out of state who may have insurances that don't cover abortion 
and for any unexpected costs that may arise both for the campus and students. So again, this bill, I think really importantly, represents concrete state and government investment into abortion care, into our institutions of higher learning and into young people. Um, and notably the efforts in California and Massachusetts were entirely privately funded, but New York is gonna be public funding because we have a bunch of socialists leading this bill effort who truly believe in the power of the state and the power of providing for the people. Um, the power of the state may be a little heavy handed, but the power of government investment into services that matter. Thanks so much for laying that out for us. Um, anything that you want to add, uh, Marion? Oh, yeah, I do. Sorry about that. It took me a second to unmute. Um, and yeah, just to, to start out, um, if you want to support the bill, you can text NYC REPRO to 50409. Um, that's a resist bot. So that's one way to plug into the work. But yeah, um, to build off of that, I'm really excited to be working with NICS around this stuff just because, um, you know, like we said before, abortion is available in our state, but a lot of students who live on SUNY campuses, for example, some of them have to travel as far as 70 miles from, from their campus to get to the nearest provider. And a lot of college, college students in the state live in access deserts where the nearest provider is an hour-long bus bus ride away. And so there, there just are a lot of barriers when you're a young person trying to access this kind of care. And it also, you know, it affects people who aren't on college campuses too. Like here in the state, there has been a lot more pressure on existing clinics with people coming from out of state to use the services. So getting abortion on campus would really make things um, easier for a lot of people in terms of an increasing access both to students, to people traveling out of state. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to add that. And again, you can text NYC Repro, all one word, to 50409 to support the bill for medicated abortion on campus. Yeah, that's part of why I think this is such an interesting bill, such an interesting angle, because as, as we discussed in the first half of the show, um, we in New York are in a somewhat different position to others living elsewhere in the United States. And um, that can sometimes lead to a sense of complacency, maybe. Um, I've, I've heard that we don't need to struggle to protect abortion um, in New York because it's just going to it's just going to be good. It's just going to keep being here through the benevolence of the, the power of the state, to use your phrase, Nix. And um, that was even something that, you know, Governor Hochul basically based her reelection campaign on in this most recent cycle was kind of drawing on this sort of uh, liberal kind of bourgeois even connection to so-called choice or women's rights as a political tentpole of her campaign as the first woman governor and, and really grounding her campaign in this kind of, not to get too jargony, but 
sort of second wave feminist conception of what abortion is and what it means that we are challenging as a new generation of organizers. You know, one thing that comes up often um, that is a point of conflict between different styles of organizing, different generations of organizing around this issue specifically is this issue of whether it's a woman's rights issue or whether it's more appropriate to discuss it in a more expansive way. You know, a lot of second wave feminists feel really strongly that this is a women's rights issue that's based in misogyny, that needs to be named, that needs to be struggled against, to which I would say, yes, I absolutely agree with that. And what else? What else is anti-abortion sentiment based on? It's obviously based on racial bias as well. It's obviously based on class bias as well. It's obviously based on settler colonial mindset as well. If you look at what's happened to indigenous people with regard to access over and control over their own reproductive capability. So it's less about saying this isn't a woman's issue and it's that's not based in misogyny. And it's more about saying it's based in a lot of other social forces as well that need to be named and organized against. Anyway, moving <laughs> moving along from that, that's part of the reason why I really like this organizing. I really like this bill is it offers something that's positive, that's affirmative, um, that's concrete, um, that people can kind of get behind and hopefully understand, you know, the importance of access to all types of reproductive care um, on college campuses for people who are, you know, at that at that age range. It's something that we can do um, here in New York State. We do not have to sit on our hands. We can get out there and we can aggressively protect the right to abortion, which is what it needs to happen. So we're going to go ahead and open our phones in just a minute. But before we do, um, I want to give you both a brief moment to discuss how this bill has been received so far um, and kind of what's your forecast for the prospects of this bill hopefully moving toward getting passed and implemented? Yeah, I think the response so far has definitely been encouraging. Uh, Governor Hochul included it in their executive budget, um, but we're currently pushing for it to be included in the full budget along with funding, most importantly, um, so that this can actually be a bill that deals with, as you pointed out, those economic barriers and those class distinctions that often so shape the terrain of abortion access. Um, and we're hoping it passes with the rest of the budget, March 31st. But really, I think it's been it's been eye opening to see legislators respond to what we tell them reality the reality of access is right when we say things like our abortion clinics face increased harassment um since Dobbs when we say things like abortion costs six hundred dollars out of pocket in New York when we say things like access is really hard when you're a young person because of the stigmatization you face those are all frankly new concepts to a lot of elected representatives and that's why bills like this and conversations like this um, are so important because no one thinks about abortion access until they need to have an abortion. And then they realize even in places like New York, it's not accessible in a real tangible way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with everything Nick's just said. And Amy, what you said before that, um, I also think is 
completely right. And in terms of the reception I've seen to the bill, um, we had a meeting with uh, the chapter's socialist in-office committee to ask if our electeds could support it. And, um, you know, the reception was good. Um, they, they all did agree to sign on to the bill. And um, I think you, you bring up a good point that um, at first it seems a little bit tough to talk about the misogyny aspect and on the fact that, you know, an attack on abortion is part of a broader assault on the, the working class and working conditions. And it's about trying to get people to do reproductive labor for free. So, um, yeah, so just to build off of Nick's part of the work, too, is getting um, other campaigns like Tax the Rich and you just get all, all, all of our campaigns to see that abortion. Yes, it's misogyny, a feminist issue, and it's also very much about class and bodies and race, like you said. So. Absolutely. So it's the time in our show when we open up the conversation and hear from our audience. It sounds like we do have um, one call on the line, but before we take that call, just love to read that number out for anybody who's sitting at home really wants to make a respectful comment or ask a respectful question of our panelists tonight. The number is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. We have a couple minutes left in the show. We're really looking forward to hearing from you. And let's go ahead and get our first call live on air. Yes, uh, greetings uh, to the beloved community. Please take calls earlier. But thank you for uh, this program. And I'm someone that back in the day, as a baby reporter, as it were, I was able to publish a piece on the women's self-help reproductive care movement. Editor changed. It was her article versus mine. But I'd like to know if you're familiar with uh, Lorraine Rothman, who invented menstrual extraction on the kitchen table. You could do it with a friend or two, very gentle suction. And then I never found out how it came about. But six grams, and of course, there's some disclaimer, consult your health practitioner, hopefully holistic, but six grams of vitamin C long before the synthetic pill, six days before your period is due, and you have all those symptoms, right? And it absolutely works for sure, okay? One woman was able to take like a one-inch piece of white tissue because she was in the shower when, when it happened, and for sure uh, the vitamin C actually works. I like your comments whether you uh, know about the movement. I'm, and I want the names of the two organizations you had earlier because I've done an updated piece with all the information included um, for sure, and I get final approval. So I'd like the names of the two organizations because I really haven't had the time to uh, search out and maybe they would be able to um Help. I want to make it widely available also as possible. So if you have any ideas around that, where uh, such a piece could initially be placed and then more widespread, and who the two 
organizations were so I can be in contact with them. Thank you. Thank you so much for calling. Um, we do have another call on the line, but we want to respond to you briefly. First of all, um, the two organizations are Reproductive Justice Collective is one and the Socialist Feminist Working Group of my organization, New York City Democratic Socialists of America. I hope that helps you in, in your pursuit. And um, Nix, I believe, had a response to some of your um, comments uh, about uh, holistic solutions for abortion. Nix, take it away. Yeah, so I love the fact that you've been doing um, and echoing the self um, managed abortion work, right? Like we know that this is a legacy that has existed for hundreds of years as how abortion worked before. I think what's important to note is that we don't have to rely on methods like vitamin D, right? We have access to mifepristone and misoprostol through organizations like plancpills.org and aid access in all 50 states, right? We can trust vetted scientific care um, because of these international doctors that are willing to mail pills to all 50 states. Um, and really just echoing um, the importance of organizations like plancpills.org and aidaccess.org. I highly recommend folks go check them out. You can actually order abortion pills before you even need them. Am I the uh, speaker that you're referring to? Yes, it's you. Go ahead. Okay. Sorry, all I heard was silence before. Listen, I, I just want to let you know, um, just right up front, uh, I'm a uh, late 70s-year-old uh, person who is somewhat moderate, but in watching my generation go completely off, 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 off the rails, I have now become a uh, DSA uh, member-paying dues person uh, who has um, responded to this, over the last uh, 50 years, this, this right-wing reactionary xenophobic, homophobic, misogynistic, anti-education, anti-choice, pro-gun, leave it to beaver trip back to the 50s. From a guy who lived in the 50s and saw what paternalistic kind of society we lived in. And I am just really fit to be tied. And I'm glad you people are being, you know, you, you got to get more demonstrative. I think a lot more of the yous have to become rams in your, uh, in your, in your flock, so to speak. And you got to speak up and do whatever is needed, like the uh, women did in the early days of the um, of the uh, abortion uh, situation. Uh, two things: my understanding is that these pills stop pregnancy from happening. So how is this not and uh, how is this considered anti-abortion if you, if there's not even uh, a fetus uh, created? Uh, that's number one. And number two, I think you girls should consider. Moving whatever um, forces you have to counter sue right now, because from what I understand from the Supreme Court, they've said that they're going to review it next term, and this decision will be late 2023 or maybe early 2024. So they're going to let this thing stand from this one right-wing reactionary judge in in Texas, and because of their their federal uh, circuitry there, the way they conducted over there, there's one judge in Galveston, only one judge. And they went shopping for him, and they got this case brought up. And this circuit judge is uh, doing this, and the Supreme Court is basically saying, well, we're going to kind of let it stand. The way they did in the situation when they let this, uh, I forget the exact case, but when they let uh, a thing that was counted to what they actually uh, uh, decreed in a, in, a, in a prior case, a recent prior case, 
stand and say, well, this is rather interesting. Uh, we'll have to examine it, and we'll let his decision stand, even though it was going against Supreme Court decision. Thank you so much for that comment. Sorry I missed you when you first came on. I had some technical difficulties on this end. And I'm so glad to hear that you've joined DSA, that you're on our side, that you can see how toxic this thinking is. And I just applaud you for staying open-minded well into your later years. And I'm just glad to be in the struggle with you. Um, I also wanna just underscore your comment about this particular judge who was essentially, I think, handpicked by Alliance Defending Freedom, who has deep, deep anti-abortion sentiment, and how this whole case really speaks to, again, we're talking about connecting issues. We're talking about not seeing abortion as something that's off in the corner. Um, it speaks to how you know anti-democratic this country has become and how anti-democratic, well, anti-democratic this country has always been, but the erosion of would you also respond to my understanding of the pill absolutely yep absolutely and i'm going to go ahead and ask reggie to disconnect you now because we have a very short time left in the show marianne take us away um and educate our caller yeah uh to respond to that um so i think two different things are being conflated so plan b is also called the morning after pill and this is a pill that you're supposed to take shortly after you've had unprotected sex i believe the window is 48 hours and i believe the weight cut off is 175 um and this is the pill that actually makes it harder for the sperm to reach the uterus so this is the one that stops you from getting pregnant then you know the quote abortion pill which is what, what we we've, what we've been talking about which is mifepristone and Misoprostol. Um, this is uh, a pill you take within the, the first first ten weeks of being pregnant. Um, so 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 right. So one you take to pre prevent a pregnancy, and the other one you take to um, end a pregnancy. Uh, I hope that clears that up. Thanks, Marion. And I'd love to hear more from our callers out there um, in the WDAI world. However, it's time for us to move along, get out of the studio so the next show can come on in a timely fashion. I want to thank you all so much for listening. Thank you to our guests tonight, Marion and Nix. And you can catch us next week. This has been Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City broadcasting 99.5 FM, streaming on your favorite podcast app. If you have questions about what we discussed on the show, want to know more about our guests, the organizations they're with, the information they presented, please just drop us a line. Our email address is revolutionsnyc at gmail.com. That's revolutionsnyc at gmail.com. You can also find us and our past episodes on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com or on Twitter at NYCRPM. I'm Amy Wilson. Thanks so much for listening. Solidarity forever and abortion is amazing. See you next week. <laughs>